Hello and welcome to Talk of Today, where we explore developments in science, technology, and society, and what they could mean for the future. I'm your host, Sam Barton. This podcast is not sponsored by anyone, but it could be, and that person could be you, for as little as $1 a month. If you would like to become a supporter of the podcast, head to patreon.com slash talkoftoday, or just head to uh, talkoftoday.com, and you can find links there. I am not going to be advertising any other products or services on this uh, show, except my own, because I think I can do that at least. And I'll explain the reasoning behind that uh, in future podcasts, but um, yeah, I'm not going to do it. So if you are finding some value from uh, these these episodes and you're learning some stuff uh, and you think you might want to become a supporter of the show, then please head to patreon.com and become my patron. I haven't quite explained the motivations behind starting this podcast just yet, but I've got an episode coming up where I'll talk about it in more detail. But here's just a brief summary. I'd like to have a structured and fun way of learning more about the developments that are shaping the world we live in, and to spread the word about a lofty goal of mine. Basically, I want us to create a digital country for the people of the world and use it as a means of bringing everyone up to a level playing field, advocating for global interests, and as a way of delivering access to basic needs and human rights. If you want to find out what on earth I'm actually talking about, head to www.globalcitizenship.today or uh, just head to talkfortoday.com and links will be in the show notes. So just one more thing before I get into it. Uh, I don't know about you, but I love the idea of getting shit done. I've downloaded plenty of to-do list apps and I've bought diaries and productivity planners to try and make myself more productive, but I've never stuck with any of them. And, you know, the best to-do list is the one that you actually use. So what I've come up with is a Chrome extension that causes my daily plan to pop up every time I open up a new tab. I probably open up hundreds of tabs a day. So having my to-do list pop up every time I open up a new tab has worked wonders for my productivity, as I see what I have to do that day instead of going straight to Facebook or Reddit, and possibly losing hours of my life scrolling through who knows what. So the features include a to-do list for the day, a space to write what I'm grateful for because expressing gratitude daily has been shown to increase overall happiness, a space to take notes, a thought-provoking quote of the day, uh, a universal task list so I can just get whatever I need to do uh, that's in my head onto some list that I can allocate to a day later, and finally, a place for tracking. So as the saying goes, what gets measured gets managed. So there's a section of the page that is dedicated to tracking things that I think are important like sleep, exercise, whether or not I meditated, and all that fun stuff. The end goal is to be able to run some analytics on my life and see what causes me to be more productive or whatever. An easy example would be to see how my sleep correlates with my daily productivity score or coffee consumption. Down the track, you'll be able to track whatever you want, but right now, uh, you're only limited to the, uh, the stock items on the list. So if you're interested in this kind of stuff, or if you just want to be more productive, check it out. I'd love some feedback, and it's free. I've got a number of my friends using it, and uh, they actually seem to be using it and enjoying it, which is great. The Chrome extension is actually not available uh, as of yet. It is the 24th of April at the moment, but it should be up over the next week or two. I'm not going to lie, it is a little bit buggy, and there are a few cosmetic issues, but all in all, it gets the job done, and that is what is most important. I just want to get it in the hands of a bunch of people and get some feedback and see where we can go from there. 
Links to it will be in the show notes, so go and check it out, and it'll be on the website as well. Um, there's all there. There will also be links on my uh, Instagram. Um, I'm at sh barton, so check that at check that out as well. <laughs> so anyway, on to the show. Today we are talking about drugs, but not just any drugs. We're talking about the psychedelic compound dimethyltryptamine, or DMT for short. Now this is one of the most fascinating things I have ever come across, and it is so fascinating that you're going to hear me say fascinating a lot of times in this interview, because it is just so intriguing. So DMT is one of many psychedelic drugs. Many of you may be already familiar with drugs like LSD or magic mushrooms. However, awareness of DMT has only recently been hitting the mainstream. One of the most fascinating things about the psychedelics is the effects that they have on consciousness. Now, consciousness is something that we really have no scientific understanding of. We know so little about it that it's actually referred to as the hard problem. So these psychedelic substances radically alter our conscious experience, and at times, they can facilitate life-changing experiences as well. In fact, researchers are now looking into how they may be used to treat addiction and depression with some very promising results. Clinical trials at Imperial College London showed that two doses of psilocybin, the active substance in magic mushrooms, was sufficient to lift resistant depression in all 12 volunteers for three weeks, and to keep it away in five of them for three months. A paper published in the journal Nature that looked at experiments done in the 60s and 70s found that LSD could be a potential treatment for alcoholism. So there are a few things that set DMT apart from the rest of the psychedelics. Firstly, it's actually found all throughout nature. It's found in thousands of plants and animals around the world. It's ubiquitous. It's even produced within the human body. It's actively transported across the blood-brain barrier, which means that the body actually expends energy to get DMT into the brain, which indicates that it might be necessary for some sort of brain function. In 2013, scientists discovered that DMT is found in the brain of rats in a place called the pineal gland. Now, the pineal gland itself has been the object of interest across cultures for thousands of years. It has been referred to as the third eye by some, or as the seat of the soul by renowned philosopher René Descartes. Putting aside spirituality and all of that stuff aside for a minute, and looking at what we know already, it really makes you wonder why scientific investigation of the substance is not more widespread. This is the only thing, I think, that we've found that bridges the gaps between science and religion. How is this not spoken about more widely? Today, I'm chatting with Dr. Rick Strassman, a specialist in psychiatry and psychopharmacology. He is somewhat of a legend in the psychedelic realms for the research that he undertook in the 1990s. He was the first to legally administer psychedelics to people in the United States in decades, giving dozens of volunteers DMT numerous times over the course of five years. His research has been regarded as kicking off the psychedelic renaissance. He has published nearly 30 peer-reviewed scientific papers and has served as a reviewer for several psychiatric research journals. His book, DMT, The Spirit Molecule, recounts the research process and documents the remarkable experiences volunteers had under the influence of DMT. The book is named The Spirit Molecule due to the accounts of the volunteers, half of which included conversing or interacting with otherworldly, godlike beings as well as experiencing feelings of overwhelming significance and euphoria, kaleidoscopic imagery, and powerful personal insights. He co-produced a documentary by the same name, DMT, The Spirit Molecule, which is available on Netflix. His most recent book, DMT and the Soul of Prophecy, looks into the parallels between the psychedelic states induced by DMT 
and the religious experiences expressed in the Hebrew Bible. So if you stick around to the end of the episode, you'll hear me discuss what I uncovered during my, uh, let's call it primary research for this topic. And without further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Dr. Rick Strassman. My name's Rick Strassman. Um, I uh, probably am known to the listeners of this show as the author of DMT, The Spirit Molecule, uh, which describes my research with DMT, a naturally occurring psychedelic substance um, in the 1990s uh, as a study with human volunteers. Um, But, uh, you know, um, I wasn't always doing DMT research, and I have not been doing it for a long time, hence, or dense. Um, I was born in Los Angeles uh, to a middle-class family uh, in a pretty Jewish community. I'm Jewish, was raised uh, in a conservative stream. Um, And uh, went to college in California, uh, became interested in uh, brain chemistry, became interested in meditation, uh, the pineal gland, uh, and uh, psychedelic drugs. Uh, so I worked you know, hard to try to you know, synthesize those uh, you know, seemingly you know, separated um, disciplines. Uh, and in the process, went to medical school, uh, became a psychiatrist, um, underwent some Zen training for a couple of decades, uh, underwent a you know, classical Freudian psychoanalysis uh, for four years, um, you know, trained in research, uh, you know, clinical psychopharmacology research. Uh, so, um, you know, that was you know, kind of the uh, context out of which the DMT study took place. And I wrapped that up quite a while ago, 1995 now. Um, <clears throat> and uh, since then, I've been uh, exposed Exploring the relevance of the prophetic experience as uh, described in the Old Testament um, as a model for, uh, or, or as a possible model for where people go on DMT and uh, how that might affect our ability to understand what's taking place in that state. Yeah, I'd like to, um, to talk um, on how, on the role that psychedelics have played in society over the millennia. But just uh, to begin with, could you um, just describe what the psychedelics actually are? Because I know that a lot of people are familiar with, you know, LSD or psilocybin, you know, magic mushrooms. But what exactly are the psychedelics? And what is it that, that uh, makes them, that separates them from, you know, the, the, the big broad label of, of drugs? Mm-hmm. Well, you know, psychedelics are chemicals. I mean, that's kind of you know, where they start. They're you know, material you know, substances, um, and uh, they're you know, pharmacologically active. Um, in other words, there are uh, parts of the body that react to uh, the you know, psychedelic drugs, um, as opposed to a purely inert you know, kind of chemical substance, um, and uh, they exert effects on every you know, category of you know, consciousness, uh, which is one of the reasons I think 
people you know find them so interesting. You know, they don't just speed you up or make you happy or slow you down, but they can make you happy. They can make you sad. They can feel make you feel slowed down or sped up. Um, you can have visions. Uh, you know, so there are perceptual effects. Um, you can lose awareness of your body, or at least the experience of your body can change quite radically. You can lose awareness of it, or you can feel um, stretched or pulled or you know, varied in some kind of ways. Uh, you know, there's emotional effects. There's mental cognitive effects. You know, how you think and what you think. Um, so, oh, they can modify your will, your your sense of self. You know, so all of those things combined uh, seem to uh, contribute to the unique uh, you know, properties of the psychedelics. You know, the ones that most people talk about most of the time are called the classical psychedelics, and they you know, share a certain structure and a certain you know, function. Uh, structurally, they're related to serotonin uh, in the body, and... Uh, you know, functionally, they modify receptors for serotonin uh, that are found um, in the brain and in the periphery, you know, the heart, the lungs, the gut. Um, and you know, there's a handful of classical psychedelics, uh, things like LSD, DMT, psilocybin, and um, mescaline, which is the active ingredient in the peyote cactus. Um yeah, you know, so they are you know, chemical substances that are found in plants and in animals, uh, and uh, they have you know particular, uh, you know, uh, well, well, so they have sp specific effects um, in the brain, which are you know related, you know, most likely to serotonin. Mm. Something that uh, has fascinated me uh, with the psychedelics is that well. Consciousness is the hard problem. It's, you know, we, we really have no idea as to how uh, or what, what is going on with our experience or what is, what is consciousness and that there are these substances out there that can vastly amplify our, our well, amplify or alter our consciousness and our experience. And um, just, uh, and this brings me on to DMT, which uh, is, I would say, a lesser known um is definitely a lesser known um, psychedelic compared to the others, though far more fascinating given uh, its prevalence in the natural world and its the, and the fact that it occurs, you know, within the body. So, could you just speak on DMT in general? Uh, sure. Um, well, it's a chemical substance, you know, like all of the other psychedelics, um, and it's what's called a you know, tryptamine psychedelic. Uh, you know, DMT stands for dimethyltryptamine, um, and it's a small compound, you know, molecularly wise, you know, the size or the weight of a molecule of, you know, DMT is only, is only uh, slightly more than that of glucose or blood sugar. Um, it uh, is a profoundly, you know, psychoactive, you know, substance. Uh, it's the active visionary ingredient in ayahuasca, which you know more people may you know have heard of than you know, DMT itself. Um, ayahuasca is a combination of plants that provides an orally active DMT effect. Um, you know, DMT is you know found in quite a few plants, you know hundreds if not thousands. Um, it was also discovered to occur 
in the body fluids and and uh, the tissues of mammals uh, in uh, the nineteen uh, in uh, the 1960s um, including humans uh, which is one of the reasons why it attained uh, the notoriety that it did uh, because <clears throat> it was the first known uh, you know, substance in the human body that could affect hallucinations you know, visions and psychedelic uh, kinds of properties. Um, it was uh, studied pretty intensively in the 1950s and uh, the 1960s, and uh, it was you know, kind of abandoned with, uh, or um, along with, all of you know, the rest of the field of clinical research with these drugs um, in the early 1970s. Um, you know, I was interested in a biological explanation for spiritual experience and uh, was looking for a compound or a material, a you know, substance in the human body that, that might you know, possibly you know, produce effects which in other uh, you know, circumstances would be called spiritual. Um, so you know, that's one of the reasons I was drawn to DMT. Sorry to interrupt, but some people claim that they can achieve these altered states of consciousness by way of meditating or through some religious setting or experiences. Do these experiences tend to mirror that of a DMT trip, or are there some similarities? Mm -hmm. Well, it would depend on the nature of that spiritual experience. Um, you know, but, uh, you know, as a rule, or, you know, kind of as the uh, exp explanation you know, for my interest in uh, looking at a relationship between DMT and spiritual experience is because of the description of the two states as uh, sharing a lot of you know, properties. Uh, with spiritual experience, uh, people can have you know, visions and voices. They could lose awareness of their body. There can be extraordinary emotional swings and uh, new ideas and new ways of looking at things. You know, so those occur in you know, both the you know, psychedelic experience and also occur uh, in spiritual ones. So, um, you know, that kind of led me to speculate that it might be uh, that people with naturally occurring spiritual experiences um, are undergoing a state where their own DMT or you know similar compounds uh, is rising and is responsible for this you know, uh, you know for the syndrome. A uh, common thread uh, in a lot of uh, religions and uh, ancient uh, you know, mythologies and all that is this uh, is the third eye, which is the colloquial term for the pineal gland. Uh, could you talk about the the pineal gland and what its function? What what is our current understanding of it in the brain, and uh, what do you think its uh, function could be? What do you think? What is your DMT hypothesis for it? Mm -hmm. um, well, I first learned about the pineal in the early 1970s, and there wasn't that much known about it, especially in humans. Uh, but as you note, it has got a long, you know, venerated history. Um, as a you know, third eye or the you know, center, uh, well, the, well, the anatomical center uh, that uh, is um, responsible for you know, the highest 
uh, you know, levels of uh, consciousness development. You know, it's interesting. Most people think about, you know, the third eye as above, you know, the lateral eyes um, and in between them. You know, but that's actually the location of the pituitary gland, if you go back a few inches. Um, you know, the third eye in, you know, lower animals, you know, lizards, um, amphibians, um, is on top of the head. And, uh, you know, the pineal gland is uh, kind of straight below the top of the head. Um, it, you know, was a you know, third eye in these lower animals. Um, it contained a cornea and a lens and a retina, you know, photoreceptors. Um, you know, but as animals advanced along the evolutionary ladder, uh, the pineal gland um, you know, kind of you know, migrated inward um, and, you know, lost its retina and its cornea and its lens. You know, but it still is responsive to light. Uh, only now the information about light uh, is brought there through an indirect route rather than through the, you know, direct um, you know, perception of light and it's currently well it's where melatonin is released is that correct yeah the, yeah well you know people really um, you know believe that the pineal was a vestigial organ you know kind of like the brain's appendix um, up until you know the 1940s actually um, and then it was you know discovered to produce melatonin um, which is responsible for skin coloration in lower animals and you know, seems to be responsible for you know, reproductive mating or you know, seasonal reproduction, um, you know, seasonal mating patterns um, in you know, seasonally um, you know, breeding animals like sheep. Uh, and uh, so uh, it was first you know, looked at as a compound with you know, reproductive effects, you know, primarily. And um, as, you know, time has gone on, it's also been, you know, determined to be, you know, quite important in the keeping of the you know, body's, you know, clock, the circadian rhythms, which repeat every 24 hours. Uh, so, you know, jet lag, winter depression, those kinds of things, uh, you know, melatonin is playing an important role. Um, you know, back in the 1980s, I started to think about a you know, biological correlate between the spiritual uh, you know, functions that have been proposed for the pineal um, and my understanding of brain pharmacology uh, and thought that perhaps, you know, based on strong, you know, circumstantial evidence, you know, the um, you know, the necessary enzymes and building blocks and whatnot you know, for DMT occur in the pineal. So I proposed that, you know, DMT is made in the pineal um, in addition to melatonin. You know, so only just a few years ago um, was, you know, that, you know, correlated or, you know, corroborated. Uh, in uh, 2013, a group from Ann Arbor, Michigan, published a paper describing the presence of DMT in the fluid that, uh, you know, is... Well, you know, pineal juice, as it were, if you stick a small needle into the pineal gland, you can draw off liquid. And, uh, you know, that liquid contains DMT in the the living rodent anyway. Um, You know, the data aren't yet in regarding humans. uh, But still, it was uh, uh, 
it was a great confirmation of a theory which I developed a long time ago, which has gotten a lot of grief uh, off and on over the years. Uh, you know, so I was quite happy yeah, to I can know, see it validated. Congratulations on that. Uh, something that's uh, fascinating about uh, DMT and well, the brain in general is that the brain actively transports DMT. Could you explain what that means? Yeah, well, you know, your question, you know, harkens back, you know, to your comment about the hard question of, you know, consciousness, you know, you know, like, how do we know anything? Um, or even, you know, uh, like, are even aware um, of anything, you know, so, um, <clears throat> you know, that, you know, question becomes even a little more complex when you think about uh, the brain actively transporting DMT across the blood-brain barrier using an energy-dependent process. You know, the brain is quite, you know, selective about the you know, substances it allows into it. Uh, there's a thing called the blood-brain you know, barrier, which you know, keeps out, you know, most of what's in, you know, the blood from getting into the brain. Um, it uh, expends energy in getting things into the brain um, using energy only for compounds which you know, seem to be necessary. Uh, you know, for its, you know, function, you know, things like blood sugar, um, certain amino acids, which are required for proteins, you know, synthesis that the brain, you know, can't make on its own. And, you know, DMT is also actively transported um, into the brain across the usually impenetrable barrier. You know, so that makes you wonder if DMT is, you know, necessary for normal brain function you know, like, you know, blood sugar is. Um, and if that were a case, and if, you know, that were the case, you know, normal, you know, brain function uh, translates or is identical with, uh, you know, normal consciousness. Um, you know, so it you know, could be that, uh, you know, the brain requires a certain, you know, window of, you know, levels of, you know, DMT in order to maintain uh, in a kind of, you know, homeostatic, you know, thermostat kind of way our um, everyday consensus reality. You know, in addition, uh, you know, DMT, you know, genes and enzymes uh, are active in the retina of the primate as well. You know, so that, you know, suggests, you know, that in addition to, uh, you know, generally modifying, uh, uh, you know, role in everyday consciousness, it may specifically you know, be involved in the mediation of, of you know, visual consciousness as well. Yeah, it's remarkable that something that is seemingly fundamental to not only our functioning, but to that of many plants and animals, is not the object of more speculation and scrutiny. Yeah, I completely uh, agree with your, um, your kind of you know, being baffled that you know, DMT's you know, presence and its effects aren't discussed more. You know, like, you know, why, uh, you know, wasn't it um, announced on the front page of the New York Times, you know, DMT is in the body and look what it does to you. Yeah, you know, but... Um, yeah, you know, people love to quote Descartes. 
Every man and his dog knows the saying, I think, therefore I am. But in your book, you highlight how he came to that conclusion after disappearing into a room for an extended period of time, meditating on the origin of thought. And he came to the conclusion that it was the pineal gland, the seat of the soul. So you'd think that uh, if we're so happy to quote him, we'd pay more attention to what brought about those thoughts in the first place. Yeah, you know, that's a good, well, yeah, you know, that is a you know, very um, important point is the role of the pineal in, you know, Descartes, you know, thinking because a lot of his work has still, it's, it, it is still influencing, I think, you know, scientific experimentation, uh, you know, the role of introspection, you know, the role of, uh, unseen you know, forces manifesting themselves through the activity of brain centers you know you know some of the ideas that he you know came up with you know continue to influence our you know thinking our hypothesis building um our experiments um our interpretation of data uh, you know um a few months ago i began corresponding with a philosophy student who's quite keen on you know, tying in Descartes' view of animal spirits and the soul and the pineal in one's you know subjective reality uh, with you know the biology of the DMT effect, uh, especially since DMT is now known to occur in the pineal gland. You know, so you know his work is you know, going to be you know, quite interesting because uh, it will force people who glibly quote Descartes to look more carefully at where you know, his ideas came from and uh, whether uh, they're worth revisiting in the present day. Mm. Yeah, well, I hope that we are. Uh, I'm sh- I, I, you know, if you have kick-started the uh, renewed interest in scientific exploration into the psychedelics, and I hope that in the near f- future we see or more people looking into DMT and it's or just and just exploring it because it's uh there are just so many questions that are left unanswered and uh I think it, it's it's pro- it's probably one of the most fascinating things I've ever ever heard about or just you know thought of because of the quandary of consciousness. So what does a DMT trip entail? How is it normally administered and what are the range of effects that people experience? Yeah, you know- Oh sure. Well, yeah, yeah. It it really is a bit of a you know challenge, I think, for most people to accept, and I think that's one of the reasons that it still remains a you know topic of you know some peripheral consideration. It has you know not yet uh, made the top forty uh, or even the top ten of things that you know people talk about. Um, well, well, yeah. You know, so you asked about what is a DMT experience like, and you know how do people take it. Uh, you know, pure DMT is uh, is you know found on the street, as it were, uh, or you know at your friend next door's house, um, in the you know free base form. Um, and uh, if a compound is in the free base form, um, it can't be taken orally. It needs to be either injected or smoked or you know um, otherwise uh, enter into the body. Uh, you can only really, you know, take, uh, you know, compounds that are salts uh, in an oral manner. You know, so DMT, you know, free base um, is either, well, it's usually smoked. Uh, and by smoked, I mean a, a vaporized on an inert substance or on marijuana. And, you know, the vapors are inhaled. Um, 
in our study, we couldn't let people smoke DMT. It smells bad and it might you know damage the lungs. I mean, who knows? And uh, you know, people cough. Yeah, it'd be hard to determine, like get the the right amount uh, administered as well. It would be it wouldn't be as accurate. It one would think. No. No, because, you know, people cough and it takes three or four big, you know, draws to get a full effect and uh, it can be, you know, disorienting after the first, you know, hit or so. So, yeah, you know, there'd be a, a lot of inconsistency in the amount people were getting in. You know, so we gave it as an injection. Um, earlier studies gave it as an intramuscular injection, but, uh, w you know, we were, you know, funded by the National Institute on uh, on Drug Abuse, you know, so you know, we kind of were approaching the DMT state as, uh, you know, something that people, you know, do, um, you know, like in the field. Uh, and we wanted to, you know, replicate the smoked effect because that was how most you know, people use it. Uh, you know, so, you know, the intramuscular response was too slow, wasn't as intense as compared to the smoked. You know, so then we found one paper long ago, which, you know, gave it intravenously. Uh, so we switched to the intravenous route rather quickly. And uh, if there were volunteers who had smoked it previously, they usually described the injection as uh, just maybe slightly more you know, rapid and intense than the smoked form. You know, so if you either smoke or inject intravenously, you know, DMT, you know, the effects begin uh, within a heartbeat or two and are marked by a feeling of inner you know, tension and acceleration and pressure. Um, and there's also an accompanying sound that takes place in a lot of people, um, a high-pitched kind of wah-wah you know, sound that increases in intensity. Um, and, you know, that you know, period of time is rather short, and it's called the rush. You know, people f you know, feel like they're rushing. Um, and uh, that peaks in about you know, 30 seconds or a minute, in which, at which point uh, most people describe a feeling of their consciousness being separated from their bodies. And uh, they then enter into a world of light with their eyes closed and uh, even with their eyes open, which is one of the reasons we started to apply black eye shade on our volunteers because it was you know, too distracting the overlay of you know the DMT effect with you know the outside world. I thought that in in your book, you, some people describe the experiences. You know, they would close their eyes and they'd be seeing an entirely different world. And when they opened their eyes, that world would be overlaid on the real world around them. So it was as if there was two. You know, they're experiencing two things at once, and it was just a uh, was fascinating. Yeah, you know, that got, you know, kind of confusing. And and you know, after all there's plenty of, you know, time to spend in the real world. So yeah. uh I mean, I wanted them to explore the DMT world with, with their eyes closed <laughs> and you know, so did they. Fair enough. But you know, they'd be but but you know, they'd be but you know, they'd be so, you know, startled by the intensity of the effects that they would almost open their eyes reflexively. You know, so if we had the black eye you know, shades on people, it you know, prevented that from interrupting the stream of effects. Um, yeah, you know, so the you know peak of the effect occurs within about you know two to five minutes after the injection. 
Um, and it starts to kind of, you know, fade at around eight to 10 minutes. And, uh, most people can start to speak at around 20 to 25 minutes. And within, you know, four minutes, it's all over. You know, people were drinking tea and eating chips and answering the rating scale. Um, but it's that, you know, five minute window, which is where all of the, uh, or where, you know, most, is where most of the interesting things take place. Um, you know, as I mentioned, it's, you know, constituted of light and it's, you know, the brightest, most intense, you know, um, heavily saturated colors that, you know, people have ever seen. Um, you know, in the first, you know, minute or so as, you know, the effects begin, you know, there's an overlay of kaleidoscopic, you know, geometric patterns. Uh, but uh, once, you know, somebody has kind of made the break with their body, um, they're completely immersed in these, uh, in these, you know, shapes and forms and morphing, buzzing uh, appearances, which are all around them. Um, and uh, one of the most, Striking elements of what people are you know, seeing is the you know, feeling of information in that state, which is being transmitted in any number of ways. One of the most interesting ways in which there were interactions occurring in that state was uh, with what the volunteers described as the beings or them or the entities uh, who appeared and disappeared, morphed their appearances and we're interacting with the volunteers you know doing things to them the volunteers could you know do things you know back to them there was the exchange of information you know there was healing there was um you know the transmitting of uh you know scenes from the future uh you know they were you know, sometimes frightening uh and you know the, the, the communication was variable uh, you know, people were so stunned by the appearance of these beings that it would take, you know, some time to establish an emotional balance. Uh, you know, sometimes the language was not quite shared. It was almost like they were speaking different languages. And it was also quite, you know, fast. Once, you know, people get your bearings in the DMT state, you don't have much, you know, time to you know, really interact. It begins to, you know, fade rather quickly. Um, and, uh, you know, when we performed a repeated, you know, dosing study uh, to develop, you know, tolerance to DMT, uh, you know, people were able to more, um, you know, more adequately establish um, channels of communication, you know, with the beings. Um, so, you know, that's, you know, one of the most you know, striking elements of the reports of the volunteers. You know, some, uh, you know, there's a, quite a bit of an emotional response. Um, it can feel, you know, quite ecstatic or it can be quite terrifying, but most of the people were quite, you know, blissful in that state. Interestingly, you know, some you know, people really didn't describe much in the way of emotional response. It was more of a, you know, you know, kind of an intellectual curiosity and apprehension of the material rather than an emotional one. Um, people still maintain their personality and themselves. Um, both the volunteers and I were expecting, 
the Buddhist Kensho or Enlightenment experience where there was the obliteration uh, of any feelings or any thoughts or any perceptions or even any consciousness at all, especially, you know, kind of, you know, centered in one individual self. Um, but, you know, that was a you know, very, you know, rare experience. So um, we uh, all had to kind of do a, a, you know, double take on the, you know, lack of a fit between both, you know, my theories, you know, based as a Buddhist practitioner for a long time, and, you know, there's, you know, theories and expectations as well, because most of them were involved in a, you know, meditative, in, in, um, in a meditative, you know, discipline, you know, so, um, you know, this, you know, wasn't what I expected or they expected, so. The term ego death, or, you know, the obliteration of oneself, uh, it's common in, you know, uh, LSD and psilocybin experiences, so it's interesting that it's uh, not as uh, prevalent or if that it's absent from the DMT trips. Yeah, it wasn't anywhere, you know, nearly as common as we thought. Uh, maybe one volunteer had what might be called a classic white light experience. Uh, but it, you know, was you know, certainly not the majority. Uh, most people maintain their egos and were able to, you know, willfully interact and affect the uh, experience as it was taking place. Mm. And it's... You, they in your book, a lot of the volunteers describe the well, the the experience itself as more real than real. That they are experiencing more than they can get from you know the, uh, reality itself. And but they're completely, uh, they have complete control of their faculties. In that they're not, you know, they don't feel like they're well. They're obviously in an altered state, but they're able to perceive what is being shown to them in that altered state as if they were just. Uh, rational, you know, normal people. Does that is that correct? Well, they did describe the state as more real than real. Um, and when you ask them what they meant, uh, you know, it's a little hard to pin down. But um, I think it you know, consisted of a, you know, a you know, sense of complete. Um, of complete truth to what they were seeing and what they were knowing. There wasn't any doubt. It wasn't as if they were thinking to themselves, am I seeing this? Um, it was completely, there was completely no question that you know, they were seeing it and it was seeing them. And there was just um, a complete identification uh, with what was being perceived and the perceiver uh, themselves. I'd like to move on to DMT and its use or function that it might have had in society in the past. I mean, shamans in Peru have used ayahuasca to enter altered states of consciousness, and in some of your more recent work, you compare the DMT experience with the prophetic experiences that are talked about in the Hebrew Bible. Uh, do you mind talking on that? Uh, sure. Um yeah, well, I completed my study in 95 and then uh, tried to figure out some way to, you know, to model the effect, uh, including that, you know, sense of reality. Um, you know, was it possible 
that the DMT state was real. Uh, so I looked into you know some of the the contemporary you know, physics you know, theories of dark matter, parallel universes, wormholes, those kinds of things. Um, and, uh, you know, it is possible to conceive of DMT modifying uh, the receiving characteristics of the brain you know, so that, you know, consciousness or the mind-brain complex is able to perceive levels of reality uh, which are otherwise invisible. Um, so I think there is some you know, merit in speculating along those lines. Um, and one could even conceive of building a dark matter camera that took you know, pictures of the contents of dark matter. <clears throat> and uh, if, perchance, the images from that camera resembled those described by people under the influence of DMT, one could suggest that you know it's the you know same thing. Um, I mean that's quite a ways in the future, I believe. Uh, it's worth you know pursuing that um, you know that avenue of you know thought and experiment. Um, you know, but another way to understand the presence of invisible levels of reality uh, is through the religious um, you know traditions. And you know, those you know, traditions have got the advantage of you know, having a you know, longer history than contemporary science. And they've also been interested in extracting the moral and ethical and you know, theological you know, content um, of those states in you know, such a way as to improve society, improve the human individual, establish the proper relationship between humans and the environment and between humans and the uh, spiritual realms, you know, the invisible realms. You know, so I started to look at, you know, the, the spiritual or the religious you know, disciplines as well as a counterpoint, as a balance, as a way to, uh, you know, complement you know, the scientific model. You know, so I wasn't that pleased or I didn't you know, find that the DMT state resembled that of Buddhist enlightenment to much of a degree. You know, that isn't, you know, to say that there is no biological, you know, basis for Buddhist enlightenment, the ego-dissolving state. You know, there is another a naturally occurring psychedelic in the body called, which is called 5-methoxy-DMT. And, um, you know, people who use is that describe more of a white light ego dissolving state? So it you know may be that the enlightenment experience is accompanied by more of a release of you know the other type of compound you know 5-methoxy DMT, and the more interactive relational spiritual experiences um, are you know more related to DMT. Um, you know, so I started to look for a spiritual or a religious model, you know, for an interactive spiritual experience, and uh, a number of circumstances, you know, led me to revisit the Hebrew Bible or the Old Testament. And as I started reading that, the notion of a prophetic experience or a prophetic state of consciousness. Uh, began to appear, um, 
and I made myself, uh, you know, compare uh, the descriptions of the two states, you know, the DMT state and the prophetic state. Uh, you know, most people think of you know, prophecy as foretelling or predicting, and uh, you know that's the you know limited you know, translation or you know definition of the prophetic state. You know, the, um, you know, the prophetic state is any encounter between a human and the spiritual, you know, level of existence. Um, you know, so it could just be a vision. It could be voices. Uh, it could be an emotional state. It could be inspiration, an out-of-body experience. Um, it could be verbal or nonverbal. Um, but, uh, you know, despite the requirement for the conventional use of prophecy as predicting, you know, predicting in spiritual experience in the Hebrew Bible is a mixed, you know, bag, is rare. Um, only the canonical, you know, prophets are, you know, known for their predictions. There's a lot, lot of prophetic experience which occurred in other figures that didn't involve any prediction at all. And you need to think about you know, you know the accuracy of predictions as well, which leads to um, a discussion of you know how to interpret you know those you know traditions or you know those predictions. You know, so uh, you know for the purposes of my project, uh, I define you know prophecy in the broadest possible way. I mean, it was any experience described by any figure in the text. You know, so using that expanded you know definition. Um, I started you know, comparing you know, the visions and the voices of the you know, biblical figures with you know, the visions and the voices uh, of my DMT volunteers. And I you know, found a striking overlap. There's a, a, striking, resem uh, a striking resemblance between you know, um, the phenomenology of uh, you know, the two states. Uh, you know, what I'm you know, proposing is that there may have been increases in the levels of DMT in figures experiencing the prophetic state. Um, and that would be the way in which the visions and uh, the voices would materialize. But the content of the state uh, would be independent of the phenomenology, the information, uh, the meaning of the visions. So, you know, that is more from a top-down approach of, you know, the reception of outside information, which is displayed on the screen of the mind, you know, through the visions. And you know, the mechanism, you know, for the visions may be or may have been naturally occurring elevations of DMT. Um, so that isn't to you know, say that people in the Bible use DMT. I'm more suggesting that it you know, would play a role in naturally occurring uh, spiritual states. How do you see, well, if DMT was to be administered uh, for therapeutic, to a therapeutic end, how do you see, how do you see that happening? Or what, what would be the uh, ideal uh, means of administering and what would be the, the set and setting and how do you think it could be done? If you think it could have some beneficial effects, which some people think it might. 
uh, you know, people email me a lot and describe their drug experiences and you know, the long-term implications of them. <clears throat> and I hear quite a few stories of ayahuasca being, being quite helpful. And you know, the visionary ingredient of ayahuasca is DMT. Um, I don't hear as many stories of people's you know, healing through smoking DMT, um, although a couple of our volunteers had major therapeutic you know, breakthroughs on DMT. You know, so pure DMT, uh, maybe in the right you know, set of circumstances, uh, could be you know, therapeutic as well. Mm-hmm. It's you know, so short um, that it's hard to you know, work with it. Most of the good therapeutic work that we saw happen was the result of our repeated, you know, our repeated dosing study. People got you know, four large doses in the space of a morning, um, one big dose every half hour, you know, four times. You know, um, a you know colleague of mine, Andrew Gallimore, in Japan, uh, you know, wrote a paper uh, on a continuous infusion of DMT, which would you know, theoretically allow you know somebody to be in that state for a long time, you know, you know for hours. Um, you know, so if there were you know uh, therapeutic work to be done, I believe that model would you know be more helpful. Just so you have more time uh, than to just navigate the, the, the smoke, and it would also You'd have more time to navigate. You'd have you know more time to interact. Um, you'd also be able to stop the infusion temporarily, and that person could interact with you know the therapist and say, "I just went through this thing. What do you believe it means? What should I do when I return to it?" You know, so you could do a lot of interesting you know therapeutic work in that state. Um, yeah, um, you know, it's a you know difficult you know drug to manage because of its short duration. So people are using the classical orally active psychedelics and therapeutic protocols for alcoholism, for smoking, for you know, fear of death, even for enhancement of spiritual sensibilities. Uh, so um, there is plenty of you know, good, um, there is plenty of good you know, research taking place with other psychedelics, I think the role of you know, DMT in therapy would be a little more, um, you know, narrow. And if not to not in therapy, perhaps to uh, explore the you know the the, the issue of consciousness, uh, or, or and to discover what what on earth it is, or what outside of earth it is. Um, yeah, I, I remember reading last year about how I think it was like. Forty percent of alcoholics who went who had a, a trip on LSD with a psychologist present, I think forty percent of them never drank again, uh, or up until now, which is quite remarkable. Uh, and you know, similar things have been found with cigarettes, as, as you mentioned. And were they using psilocybin mushrooms for mm-hmm. terminally ill patients to help them deal with the f- fear of death? Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah, uh, you know, back in uh, the 60s, they used LSD to deal with the fear of death. Also, they used a drug called, you know, DPT, which is, you know, similar, you know, to DMT. Yeah, and, you know, nowadays they're using psilocybin. It's actually a pure psilocybin. Uh, it's, you know, made in a laboratory. Okay. And there's plenty of old research with LSD and, yeah, you know, there's, you know, there's, you know, quite a bit of old, of old research regarding LSD being quite helpful for the treatment of opiate 
abuse, opiate addicts, you know, so with this huge opiate you know, problem occurring in the West, uh, I wouldn't be surprised if, you know, psilocybin were not, you know, turned to that problem. So we'll wrap up very shortly, but I think that there might be some of those listening out there right now who may be intrigued and tempted to engage in some experimentation with the psychedelics. So do you have any recommendations for those would-be psychonauts? Because some people advise that one should approach taking these compounds as if they're about to go in for brain surgery. You don't do them lightly for a laugh. Do you have any recommendations? Yeah, well, you know, first of all, I don't encourage anybody to take drugs. I mean, that's kind of from the outset. Uh, you know, I even tried to discourage my, I even tried discouraging my volunteers from participating. Uh, you know, so I, I think it's a big, you know, deal to take drugs. You know, so, uh, you know, it can really affect your mind, your your growth, your development, and these drugs we're talking about are all against the law to possess. But, you know, that being said, I give people advice and they, you know, take it for what it's worth. You know, people are going to use drugs, you know, so um, in that case, you need to be informed. Uh, you need to be educated and prepared. So, um, you know, there's a lot of different ways to take you know, psychedelics. Uh, you know, if you know, people are interested in, in, you know, my take on you know, getting ready uh, or, you know, how to approach I experience, you know, like that. Um, I've got a free sample chapter uh, on my website under the category of a book called Inner Paths to Outer Space. Um, so if they go onto my website and they click Inner Paths to Outer Space, there's an option to click on okay. sample and chapter. I'll, I'll link that in the, uh, in the show notes. Yeah, and it's called, you know, Preparing for the Journey. Um, and it's, you know, kind of an obsessive description of what to do and how to trip and what to expect, um, you know, preparation, those kinds of things. Uh, so, you know, people have, you know, found that chapter okay. helpful. So well, thank you very much for sharing. Uh, is there anything that you'd like to, any asks of the audience or anything you'd just like to say, um, some final words perhaps? Um, yeah, well, I think these, you know, drugs ought to be studied and used for the greater good. Um, I think one doesn't want to become a fundamentalist, uh, a you know, psychedelic fundamentalist. Um, I think it's becoming a little more mainstream. I mean, it has a long way to go before it's mainstream, but I think the you know, research community is working on you know, maintaining a mainstream kind of attitude, an approach, a perspective. Uh, but I think that ought not to detract from you know, creativity with these substances. Um, I don't think we want to get you know pigeonholed and thinking of them as only one, you know, as you know, possessing only one you know set of merits. Uh, I think one of the things that they you know, teach is that uh, you know things are manifold. Uh, so um, I think it's good to keep an open mind regarding drugs that allegedly yeah. give you an open mind. It's a bit uh, of a catch-22, you know. These things can give you an open mind, but you need to have an open mind to, to try them. <laughs> I'd just like to, uh, to thank you for engaging in this research, uh, you know, 20, 30 years ago and 
reopening the door to uh, psychedelic investigation because I think inadvertently you've you've had a, a huge impact on a lot of people's lives through the proliferation of this information and knowledge and I'd just like to to thank you again for that because I think it's um from from what I read uh, in your book it was not an easy journey and there were lots and lots of obstacles and you were uh, adamant and you managed to make it through and you paved the way for a lot of people so uh, great job on that and thanks again well thanks um, yeah well I think I was just lucky. I was in the right place at the right time, um, and things just came together. So, uh, yeah, yeah, I think somebody else in my position could have done it just as well. <laughs> Maybe better. <laughs> All right. Well, I think we'll wrap up there. Uh, thank you very much for being on the show. Thanks again to Dr. Rick Strassman for taking the time to chat. I hope you enjoyed our conversation as much as I did. So at the start of the podcast, I alluded to discussing my own experiences with the realms that DMT makes available. But before I get into that, I'd just like to say that seeking these altered states of consciousness should not be done lightly. Firstly, there's the whole legality aspect to it, which is a topic I'm going to cover in future podcasts. But I'd like to mention that the Global Commission on Drug Policy has recommended that countries should end civil and criminal penalties for drug use and possession. That being said, these recommendations for the most part have not been heeded, so please tread with caution. Aside from the legal perspective, there is always a little bit of a health risk as well. Not everyone will react to these things in the same way, so please use them with caution. Undertaking a psychedelic journey should not be done lightly. These substances are incredibly powerful. They can be utterly blissful and magical, and at the same time, terrifying. You may experience profound joy, but also dance with insanity. I can guarantee that you will look at the world in a way that you've never seen it before. I just wanted to mention these caveats before recommending a psychedelic experience. Uh, so if you do decide to go and explore the psyche, just please do some research, prepare, take care, and enjoy seeing the world from a new perspective. I recommend checking out some of Sam Harris's work. He's a philosopher, neuroscientist, and best-selling author, and a man I hold in high regard. In a podcast called Drugs and the Meaning of Life, he said that if his children did not try a psychedelic like psilocybin, which are mushrooms, or which is the active chemical in magic mushrooms, or LSD, at least once in their adult lives, he would wonder whether or not they had missed out on one of the most important rites of passage a human being can experience. I'll include a link to this podcast in the show notes. In today's day and age, people crave authenticity. This podcast is about learning what's going on in the world, but more importantly, it's about living a life without ignorance. We shouldn't close our minds to the facts. Knowledge is empowering. I want to do my best to embody this principle of authenticity. So I'm going to be honest. Sorry, fam. You boys done some drugs. And uh, I'm sure that some of you may think this is just some dude talking about this one time he got high. And look, that's okay. But I think some of you might be interested to hear about what I experienced. Because I'll say it again, in all honesty, this was one of the most profound experiences I've had to date. So here we go. So I smoked it um, through a bong. I sprinkled some of it on top of some mint leaves. So basically I smoked the DMT Freebase, which is just like a, a little salt. They're like salt crystals, if you can just imagine that. Uh, and I put them on top of some mint leaves and um, pulled the bong hit. And after a few moments of inhaling the smoke, I began to feel this incredible vibration. Uh, but it was within me, but also external. Like the entire world was this 
was this, were, were vibrations and I was a part of it. And the more attention I paid this vibrational sense, this, this sense of vibration, the more intense it got. And then I began to see, um, these, these, uh, patterns and shapes kind of flying towards me, uh, changing colors and, um, changing shape as well. Uh, my entire reality existed of these, of these shapes. The the best way to describe them is fractal because you're kind of flying through this. There was this sense that I was flying through this, this world and it was infinite, but at the same time, it all felt very close. And if you, if you look up fractal patterns, um, if you, if you're unaware of what they are, you can kind of get a sense for what I'm talking about. So I experienced these, these, basically traveling through this fractal world. And um, I'll, I'll just say this, it felt very, very familiar. Whatever, wherever I was going, whatever I was experiencing, there was a, it was just very, very familiar. It was like I'd, I'd been there before, or I don't know, it's, it's, it's hard to describe, but from comparing stories with uh, friends, um, they've expressed similar things. So anyway, um, I experienced... Oh, I saw these these shapes that were changing color and shape, and um, I began to get the these little like psychic blips. I would call them. I I didn't even think I'd be using the word psychic. In all honesty, um, I'd never really turned the use the word psychic <laughs> uh, in relation to something that I'd experienced. But the only way I could describe it is like a, a psychic explosion in the mind. Um, it was it, and it felt like it. I actually felt something in my head. It was, it was a bit weird. It was just like a, someone had turned the tap on for something just on quickly. And, um, a little bit of something was let out and I experienced this, like this blip in my mind. And the crazy, the, the weird thing is I've experienced this before whilst sleeping or lying down, trying to sleep. And I just kind of get like this little, um, blip or psychic explosion in my mind. And it will kind of, it would kind of wake me up. Uh, so anyway, I, I had this feeling that I was um, tuning into something and this could be uh, because I've heard other people describe it uh, this way. So perhaps, you know, my experience was colored by, by uh, other people's experiences, but it, it really felt as if I was tuning into to something out there, whatever, whatever it is. Uh, it was as if my consciousness was another sense, like, uh, you know, sense of sight and sound, and it was just tuning into this this message, this this frequency or whatever it is that's out there always. Um, but I've only just been able to to tap into it. So I felt as though I was tuning into this, and as I was tuning into it, I was getting these you know uh, some psychic explosions, and that that kind of made me feel like that, that's one of the reasons why I thought I was tuning into it because as I was like adjusting the dials, I was getting these little psychic blips, and. I was thinking, I, th- I thought to myself, okay, so if I'm tuning into something, what am I tuning into and what is the message? And then a fraction of a second later, there was this exploding light that just filled my entire reality. It was, bl- it was, you know, all consuming. And there was this, tr- just this huge sense of awareness of something on the other side, whatever it was that was broadcasting this message. It was as if I was tuning into this, this sea of consciousness or awareness that there was information there. And so this, this explosion with this, this sense of awareness, it was like a boom, motherfucker, this is what you're tuning into. And 
I was just exposed to this infinite sea of consciousness or something. And it was, I just was started chuckling to myself. I, I literally, I remember chuckling to myself thinking, oh my goodness, I have so many more questions now because leading up to this experience, I would, I would never, I'd never describe myself as um, religious. Uh, I, I, was, I was born Catholic, but I never believed in, in God. I'd never describe myself as atheist though, because I think to be an atheist, you have to be quite sh- I think a lot of atheists are sure there is no God, and I am not. Because we don't have the answers, so I'm not going to say if there is or if there isn't something out there. I'm just happy to not know and... Uh, I think that just I think that just makes life more exciting. That being said, I just have so many more questions after the experience that I've had. I w- would say that after what I did experience, I'm leaning more towards the that there is something out there than I previously did. And while I was uh, experiencing all of this, I was ha- super aware of my thoughts and how they were external to my experience. And um, I've been getting into meditation over the past. Uh, year and a half, on and off. I'm not very good at sticking with it, but I've been trying to do it most days. And I do it every every off day, every day or so uh, when I can. And I've actually found that this um, experience has helped with my meditation sessions. And I've got objective proof because I, uh, I meditate with this, with a headband called the Muse headband. I'm not supported by them or anything, but it's just a headband that I'm using. And it gives me, it basically reads my brainwaves uh, as I meditate and gives me auditory feedback. Um, to kind of keep me in check, to keep me in a relaxed state. And I found that after this med- after my DMT session, um, my meditation sessions have gotten way better. I'm, I'm a lot, I can get into these calm states a lot more easily than I did before. And I've got the data to show it. I can show you the data before I had this session and the data after. So I think that's pretty interesting. But the reason why it, uh, I think it's helped is because I was so aware when I was, you know, on DMT that my thoughts were external to me, whatever I am, like the awareness that is me was completely separate to my thoughts. And I remember thinking or seeing these thoughts external to me and thinking, God, Sam, shut the hell up and just focus on the crazy shit that's going on around you. And then that I had a little realization then I'm like, oh, so this is what these these meditation dudes are talking about, you know, um, I read this book called the untethered soul, which kind of, uh, put this into some, into some perspective for me and quite a great book. I I highly recommend it. So there was that, uh, so it helped me. So quick summary, um, incredible sense of, uh, vibrations and tuning into something, um, crazy fractal patterns and colors, uh, tuning into, what I would call universal consciousness or something, just this sea, an infinite sea of information. And um, I'll just say again that it all felt so familiar, which is the, which is the, the most intriguing thing. Um, it felt so, so familiar. And I personally want to get more into uh, meditation or all of these things to try and tap into these states Um you know, in sober states, well, sober prior to tapping into them, because I actually think it's possible, especially considering the fact that there is reason to believe that DMT occurs within the body and is released um, at times. Uh, and, you know, if, if thinking about what Dr. Rick Strassman said in the interview, um, that could be the case. Uh, so I hope you 
um, I hope my <laughs> me talking, you know, off the cuff about some of my experience. I hope I hope I wasn't too all over the place, but uh, it was quite a. It was it was a roller coaster ride, and living through it, thinking back on it again, it still is a bit of a roller coaster ride because there was just so much happening in so little time. Um, I'll, I will just say that when I was experiencing it, I remember lying there and I was with a friend, and I was you're completely aware that you are, well, I was still aware that I was in this world, but it was as if that there's this world here. And then if you just phase shift or that if you just, you can kind of just slip into this other dimension that's always there, it, like this world and wherever I was tapping into, they coexist. They're always there. Um, and that was, that, that was intriguing. So look, it could just be, um, you know, my brain, I, I, I've, ingested or you know inhaled this chemical and it caused my brain to do all these crazy things that made me you know experience whatever i experienced and it's all you know it can all be explained neurologically but we don't know and that's not an exciting answer <laughs> and given what i've experienced um and what a lot of other, well, and what a lot of other people have experienced um i'm open to the idea that there are some more metaphysical uh explanations for for whatever it was and it just really makes me even more aware and more passionate about why we need to be exploring these things scientifically because it's just a travesty that we are not explain that we are not exploring this psychedelic substance that occurs within the human body that you know the brain actively transports and has been and what could have been the result or, you know, the cause of mystical experiences for people for millennia. I'm going to wrap the podcast up there. If you have any questions, um, you know, please get in touch. You can comment on the, uh, the podcast page. You can send me an email at sam at talkoftoday.com. Um, there's a Facebook page that you can get in touch at. And uh, if you are enjoying these podcasts, um, if, and if you'd like to, you know, support the podcast, just um, give us a rating on iTunes or Stitcher or however you're listening to this, share it with your friends. And if you really think you're getting some value from this, um, consider becoming a Patreon or a patron on Patreon for me um, because I'm not going to run advertising on this. Uh, I don't really believe in advertising. And um, I'll explain why in future episodes. Um, I listened to a podcast with Sam Harris and he explained why he doesn't accept ads and he did it very eloquently. And so I'll probably steal a bit of, steal a bit of his stuff. But, um, yeah, I'm confident that I don't want to run ads on this podcast, but it still costs money to run, to produce. Um, and I'm doing this on a, a shoestring budget. Um, so if you'd like to see more podcasts or more higher, higher quality podcasts, or if you just like to show your support, head to, uh, the Talk of Today Patreon page, which is patreon.com slash talkoftoday. And, um, you know, you, the, the, the entry pledge is $1 a month, which will equate to at least 25 cents per podcast. So if you value these podcasts at at least 25 cents, consider supporting, uh, c- consider supporting me. And um, I'd greatly appreciate it. So on that note, um, I bid you a good day. Go out into the world and smile be awesome. Don't they don't take things too seriously. Blah blah. And have a wonderful day, morning, afternoon, weekend, whatever's happening in your life at the moment. Enjoy it.